Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is the premier GPS hunting app available for your smartphone, tablet, computer, all of them synced together. You can mark your waypoints on the computer, they're transferred over to your phone and vice versa. So one of the features that we actually talk about a little bit here in this podcast is the off-grid feature. So when you have no cell service, you can still use your phone as a GPS and be able to have it operate as normal, even on airplane mode. So what you do to download a map is while you have open the Onyx Hunt app, the second tab on the bottom is called Offline Maps. Click on that, click New Offline Map and select the area that you want to download. You can choose from three different resolution sizes. High resolution, which does a five mile uh, wide area, then a medium, which is 10 miles wide, and then a low res that's 150 miles wide. So you hear us talk about that a little bit in the podcast, and that's what we're referencing. I like to do most of my areas in high res if possible, um, but it all depends on how much storage you have on your phone and uh, everything else. But Really like uh, to being able to use that feature, turn your smartphone into a GPS. So if you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app, head over to onyxmaps.com. Use the coupon code EMW. That'll save you 20% off of the Onyx Hunt app. And Tethered Nation. So Tethered Nation was created from a, a vision, from a need in the industry. There was you know, a smaller niche community of saddle hunters that were lacking in gear options available to be able to, to really innovate. And so what tethered the tethered team did was develop the most innovative, lightweight and safest elevated hunting gear on the planet. And they, I heard they have a new uh, platform coming out here. They released some, some news on that here recently. So it's a bigger form of the the Predator platform to uh, put your feet on while you're in the saddle. Super cool to see that really fitting all different types of guys, girls, and styles of hunting. So head over to tetherednation.com. Check out their line of saddle hunting gear as well as just the amount of information on saddle hunting in general. I've learned a lot from that site so head over there and check that out. Uh, University of Elk Hunting. So Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have put together the most f- fully comprehensive elk hunting learning course available. 17 different modules from the beginning phases of figuring out your budgeting, you know, picking a unit, how to scout, how to do all those things, all the way through your training, your fitness, the gear, elk hunting knowledge, down to how to get that animal out of the field when you are successful. So this is everything, a one-stop shop. Don't need to spend hours and hours searching the internet, reading through forums, trying to find useful information. It's all one place, and it's definitely not too late to check that out for this elk season. I will have Corey on the podcast here in a couple weeks to uh, talk some elk hunting. But if you want to check out the online course, head over to elk101.com and use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST. That'll save yourself 20% off of a one-year membership to the online course. 
All right. So on this week's episode, I am joined by Bill Vander Hayden, and this will be a two-part series. Again, I've had a few of those here in the last few months, um, but this one, just a lot of information here. Um, on this episode, we're going to talk about bow tuning uh, for fixed blade broadheads, how to make sure your bow is shooting correct so that they fly, all about you know the fixed blade mechanical kind of you know thing that everyone goes back and forth on there, that argument, and also the new wide series heads that are designated mostly for whitetails. Um, so that's a so we're talking about all of those things. And in part two, we're going to talk about all of our Alaska hunt preparation. So Bill and I are both going flying with the same air taxi um, to hunt caribou next month. And uh, so we're, we're both, we geek out on that, talk gear, expectations, kind of what our thoughts are. And, you know, you know I'm kind of in a, a tough place as I mentioned a little bit last week, but uh, my flight's have been just well they've been canceled to this point and working on different options with the air taxi to because of the commercial flights being canceled see what they can do otherwise i might be up there for longer than i expected which is uh you know when you're using vacation days that's kind of a big deal so trying to trying to figure all that out navigate the waters but you know, there's nothing I could do right now. Waiting for the air taxi. Look at their schedule. So just not stressing about it. Getting things worked out. Getting final pieces of gear in. Um, going to be actually going to be using uh, a rifle on this hunt. I think I'd mentioned that already um, in one of the previous episodes. But I decided to go 100% rifle. I knew if I carried both a bow and a rifle, I was going to grab the rifle. For me, doesn't change the experience whatsoever. Um, so I'm actually really excited to try something a little bit different here and, uh, yeah, I'm going to be putting together. I got the, the Maven RS2 scope. I'm going to be putting that on a new Bergera 300 Winchester short mag rifle that, uh, I got coming in here shortly should be here probably next week. So going to get that and get it sighted in, shoot it a little bit and just, incredibly excited to kind of go down a little bit of a, a different game with that with uh the rifle hunting for the caribou hunt plus i'd feel a little bit better with um with the the chance of grizz being there and everything and i'm decided not to take my handgun so yeah a lot of, a lot of cool stuff going on there but um anyways i do have a few new products up on the website uh i, I forgot to mention this last week actually but i have uh, a new like baseball tee, like a three quarter sleeve um, shirt that I called the road trip tee. And also um, I got a tank top, the, the all American tank top, just a white cotton tank top with uh, the red, white, and blue East meets West logo on like the left pocket area. And also got a couple phone cases up there with a, a new kind of shirt and hat design that, uh, will eventually turn into shirts and hats, but with COVID, I'm struggling getting anything right now. So just understand also with that new road trip tee, I've been trying to get that on the website for a while. It's This one is directly shipped from uh, the supplier. So I'm doing a little bit different with some some of the shirt items. Instead of having to stock a whole bunch of sizes, not sure you know what 
we're going to, what people want, everything. I'm doing a, almost like a, a drop ship type thing. So I got the products, used them, you know, was making sure they were up to the quality standards that I liked. And so now what would happen was you'd place an order for, there's only a few items that are under this now, and you can see it on, on the website. I have it right in the description, so it's wide open. But if you order one of these items, it doesn't get fulfilled by me personally. So I'm not shipping that product. It's coming straight from that supplier. And so they're making it basically on demand. Um, so to be like fully transparent, you know, I'm not making a very good margin on it, but I also have zero risk in creating the product. And I think that I can, you know, bring more designs to life where otherwise it'd be a little bit tough to justify, you know, throwing thousands of dollars at a new design when I can do that at, uh, you know, low risk going into it. So super excited about, uh, some of those things, but just, just understand that, you know, right now with COVID, there's some delays and things, but uh, you will get your stuff and it will be make sure as always that you're 100% satisfied with your order and um, I'll take care of you personally. So check that out over eastmeetswesthunt.com slash shop. All right, enough of me rambling on here. Let's, uh, let's get right into this episode with Bill Vander Hayden. All right, we are recording. Bill, how are you doing? I'm good, Bo. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Pretty, pretty good, Bill. It's been about a year since I've had you on the the podcast. And for those of you who don't know, this is Bill Vander Hayden from Iron Will Outfitters. And yeah, it's good. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you too. I see you had a successful elk hunt last year. Congrats on that. That was great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And. Um, yeah, was using uh, the Iron Will, the S125 broadheads, as as you saw there, and the and the K1 skinning knife was a big part of uh, the that whole process. So that was pretty pretty awesome to get to use some of your stuff there. And and yeah, as you know, we've we've talked a lot over the last three years or so. It's uh, the elk hunt has been something I've been working on for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, last time we talked. Um you'd had a few years of, of a lot of work and, and not an elk down yet. So I was, I really, really happy to see you, uh, success, your success this year. That's great. And, uh, yeah, glad you used the iron wheel last one twenty five. That's, that's a, that's a great elk head. That's the one I use as well. So that's really cool. Yep. And then, uh, kept the little carbide sharpener in my kit, my kill kit and was able to sharpen up that blade again use the same i was i didn't end up shooting a mule deer but i had it ready to go and i uh, just needed one quick touch up on each side and it was it was ready to rip but it was funny i uh right afterwards i told justin who was doing the the filming i grabbed it, it was stuck in a, a thing of oak brush it passed through the elk at 60 yards all the way through stuck in the oak brush because i couldn't i was looking for my arrow and i couldn't find it and it was sticking straight out of this piece of oak brush and uh grabbed it and shaved hair off my arm with it right then so that was pretty cool after when when i heard i've never shot an elk before obviously and when i heard the shot it scared me because what i did was it hit ribs but for me when i hear that whack i think of a white tail front shoulder and usually that's not good and that i uh 
it was great. Went right through it, busted through the ribs and both lungs there. And it was, uh, yeah, it, everything went as planned. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I hear that a lot too, that, um, if it doesn't hit ribs, it zips through so quick and quietly that people think they miss. So, you know, uh, hitting a rib makes me, I like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and most of the time for whitetails, I'm using lighted knock or something and I can see, you know, my arrow and kind of have an idea what's going on. We're in Idaho. We weren't allowed using those. So when I shot, I mean, you know, I, I had no idea where I hit. And even with the, the footage of it, you couldn't really tell um, where it was, where the shot was hitting besides the fact that you could see me in slow-mo shaking a little bit as I was at full draw. So that, uh, had me concerned, but I, yeah, I, the shot felt great. It executed it and ended up, ended up all working out. But the funny thing about that shot was at my house, I had set up, um, one of those targets. I can't think solo targets. It's like a 2d, a cardboard cutout basically of an elk. It looks live, but you just tack it onto your regular target. And, my normal, like I'd shoot all over different distances, but if I'd walk out my back door from my patio to that target was exactly 60 yards. So that's just like, if I was going to shoot five arrows, you know, I went out and did that. And that shot, when I hit it with the range finder, it was like 60.2, it popped up. So it was like, just like all my summer practice, everything was good, just except for I was on my knees. But um, yeah, everything just, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, that's great. That That's a pretty long poke. You know, it's, in the backyard, what I find is um, I can shoot really well in the backyard, even 80 and 100 yards. It's like I can always seem to fit in that side of the elk vitals. But um, you get out there in the field and even just shooting total archery challenges last weekend um, when you're in uneven terrain and shots are up and down and there's more wind and all that, that, um, yeah, those those groups open up and those shots are a little tougher for sure. Yeah. Just long distances. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely tough. And that's why, you know, I'd see you doing it all the time and on Instagram and stuff where you shooting long distances and practicing. Cause then it makes the, obviously the closer ones easier. Um, but total archery challenge taught me a lot about that and practicing those different shot angles and the different, everything that goes along with it. And I was, you know, practicing shooting off my knees and kind of on the side of a hill because in, and all of this shot was like, if you could take the perfect shot you'd want at an elk, everything was perfect. Like I didn't have to stop him. Wasn't, he was just, he was kind of, he was fault. He's pushing these cows around, but kind of feeding at the same time. Wasn't like full, um, like chasing them or anything. And he just stopped there, put his front leg forward, <laughs> broadside, 60 yards, wind died down. It was like everything meant to happen that way. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's great. It all works out like that. Yeah. So how was your season last year? Oh, it was really good. It's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Really. I, uh, never had so much success as I did last year. You know, every hunt, um, I was able to get, get the animal and, you know, started out with, uh, an antelope, um, in August, got a nice buck on public land there. And then went right into elk hunting over the counter archery, um, in Colorado and, and got a nice six point bull there on a backpack hunt five miles in solo. I kind of wish I'd had my buddy along at that point. <laughs> he filled his tag three days earlier and he, he was uh, back at work already. Um, but yeah, I went from there to, um, got, uh, whitetails in Wisconsin and Indiana 
and mule deer in Colorado and, uh, and a mountain goat in Colorado. So that was, <laughs> I've been applying for, I don't know, 13 years, something like that. I finally drew that Colorado mountain goat tag and that was an amazing hunt. Um, you know, camped at about 12,000 feet and hunting was all up from there, just in the high, high rugged, uh, cliffs. And it's just amazing the country they, they live in. And man, it was, it was a rugged hunt. It was, it was, you know, cold. Um, I mean, I should have been miserable, but I actually just had a smile on my face the whole time. I was just loving, loving every minute of that hunt. It was a good time. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. When I saw that you, you did that and I didn't realize that through the season you had hunted that many different places and ended up tagging out and all that. That's a pretty banner year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eight, eight hunts, eight animals. So, I mean, that's, I don't think I've ever been successful in all my tags before. And I know there's some years when I had a lot of tag soup in the past, so I'm, I'm pretty pumped about that. Hopefully I can keep that streak going here. Damn. That's kind of, that's Aaron Snyder like right there. <laughs> You know, Aaron Snyder's like five times that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's nuts. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, the success might be like Snyder, but he's got, you know, 40 animals a year or something like that when he does it. In fact, he was one of the testers on our new Whiteheads this year, and I was having trouble getting a count of how many animals we actually took. I think there was a dozen of us testing the new Whiteheads. And we took about 50 animals total, but Aaron took over half of those himself with the whitehead. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a good field tester, that's for sure. <laughs> he's, he's the best. Yeah. He's, uh, I don't know anybody that gets as many animals on the ground as he does, for sure. Yeah I, yeah, I hope at some point I can do that, which I don't know if I could do as many hunts as he does. Like, everyone thinks that that's like the the dream to be able to hunt that much. But for me, I, I don't know if I could do it. That's a lot. You know, I started to realize that last year too, that I thought that at one time too, that I would just love to just hunt, you know, every day year round. But in reality, man, you get worn out, um, going right from, you know, the antelope isn't too hard of a hunt. It's, you know, Eastern plains, but then that elk hunt was pretty brutal. Um, buddy of mine, Eric got, got his bull and we, we packed his down, down to a creek actually and got packed out from there. But, and then, um, but yeah, it was pretty, pretty rough just getting that out and then hiked out, slept in my truck for a night, trying to kind of recover, hiked in the next morning, another probably five miles with a full pack and, um, you know, got a bull a couple of days later and then I was solo. And then I spent two days packing that thing out, um, five miles and it was, you know, three loads, 80 pounds of meat. And, you know, I had a good, you know, a good solid Kafaru pack and some trekking poles make that, make it doable. It's got to take your time and get it done. But yeah, I was pretty beat. And then I just had, you know, a week or so, um, week or two. And then my mountain goat hunt started. So I was, I was actually liking a little bit of rest in between, in between the hunts this year, you know? Yeah. That, that would be rough. I couldn't imagine, you know, I, I, the solo deal for an elk is, is crazy packing that out. Cause like when I was packing my bull out, what I had is me and three other guys to take, you know, so we got it out in one load and we figured my pack with the hind quarter and the head and the hide and everything on it. And all my gear was somewhere around 105, 110 pounds, but it was, it was, I think a two and a half mile pack out. It wasn't anything crazy. And, uh, 
that was that was tough too you know i mean like i I couldn't imagine having to go back out and then be like oh i gotta turn back around and go back in and get another load and you know do that again (laughs) Uh, the nice thing is i don't have a real job anymore you know it's just uh the the broadhead company and if i uh you know if i don't if i'm not working there's lost opportunity there but i prioritize hunting over over work and you know (laughs) during september for sure so you know i i knew i had i i had days to get it out if i needed to um i sunk it down in a cold creek you know a double contractor bag the meat so it it wasn't nothing was going to happen to it i could have taken three days if i needed to um and then i don't overload it too bad you know when 80, 80 pounds. I kind of know I can do 80 pounds, um, for many miles and it's not going to, it's not going to kill me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, hurt anything other than, you know, have some sore muscles and things from that. But when we took Eric's bull out, he wanted to do the one trip deal with two guys and, and camp and bows and everything. And I'm like, Eric, let's just take two trips. It's like, no, I don't want to climb this hill again. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, uh, he had two, he had basically two loads of meat and I had a load of meat and I carried the head, the whole head and antlers. Um, and, and my bow too, or did he care about bows? I don't know. We had way, we were way too overloaded, but the good thing is we we only had to drop down oh, a mile or so down to a Creek. But even that short time with that much weight on, cause we each had well over hundred pounds. Yeah. Um, you know, things that, you step and, and I did too. I kind of stumbled a little bit and almost, you know, did a header off the side of this. You know. <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have killed me, but it would have hurt pretty good rolling down the side of this hill. And that's the problem with having just too much weight is, yeah, you step wrong way and, and you're down and you hurt yourself and then you're out of luck for a while. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Everyone makes fun of me when we're in, uh, when we're hunting because my ankles are extremely weak. It seems like it, they laugh at, laugh at me about it, but I'd be coming down and I rolled it twice. Like it just completely buckled underneath me on just on uneven train on some rocks and stuff. And, and that wasn't very fun. I was like, just got to keep moving. Cause as soon as you stop, it starts to tense up and swell. So I was like, just keep going until I got back to camp. Then I was, then I was good to go. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Um, and, and I'm sure that it was a lot of experience of learning that, uh, where your comfortable load was. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, different boots over the years and things like that. Um, you know, I've tried to go too light and, uh, it's, I mean, it's really nice to have a light pair of boots on when you're, while you're hunting and you're ascending, but I've just found that, um, I need a certain level of ankle support when you add all that weight and you're off trail, you know, that's, that's when it's brutal is when there's not a good trail hike on and you're, you're side hilling and stuff like that with a bunch of weight on it's, it's, um, yeah, I wear heavier boots yeah, uh, than most probably just for that reason. What boots do you use? Yeah, I've gone a few different things. I mean, I've got a pair of like a Loa mountain hunters and those are pretty bomb proof. They're pretty thick leather and, I used those for a number of years. And then last year I tried, uh, the crispy, um, well, I've tried some other lighter ones like Vasque, um, that were more synthetic and didn't have a lot of ankle support. And those just didn't do it for me. I mean, they were great for hunting, but I couldn't take the heavy load on side hills. Um, last year I used 
crispy um, the Thors, and they're really kind of a a shorter boot than I normally would. But man, they were just so comfortable, and I liked um, I really liked hunting in them. But that that pack out of that elk, uh, my feet were pretty sore afterwards. So I've gone to the brick stall now, okay, um, just for some more um, you know stiffer um, sole a little more cushion, a little more ankle support. And I really like those. So that's what I'm using now. Okay. I, I was using the Loa Tibet, um, which is a, it's a pretty heavy, you know, leather boot and good ankle support. I, I, I like those boots a lot. I've had them for the last five years and used them. I'm looking at some, uh, whenever I do an elk hunt again, some different crispies. I was looking at the, the Brickstoles I've heard good things about. I like that style, almost like a mountaineering type boot. And then uh, there's another one that's similar to it. Can't think of the model, but um, yeah, those both were kind of, um, I, I like that. I've tried using even just, um, you know, around here hiking, I've tried to use some lighter weight ones, packing in even my tree stands and stuff like that. And I just didn't feel comfortable it, um, with that. I, I like a little bit of a stiffer boot. They, they are heavier, but. I'd rather not hurt myself from it. Yeah, it just protects. I just found it protects your feet better and your ankles. So, yeah, you're, you might be a little more tired, but it it's not going to kill you to do a heavy load on a side hill or something like that. You know, your feet or ankles are going to survive it. So, um, yeah, the Loa Tibet is just a, maybe an inch or two shorter than the Loa uh, Mountain Hunter that I had. But yeah, great a great boot for sure. Yeah, um, get those resold too. I mean. Mine are probably eight years old and they're still good because I've had them resold um, as well. Well, the one thing that I screwed up was on year number one or two, I put them on a boot dryer and I left it plugged in for three days without, uh, and it dried the leather out real bad, which still, I mean, I conditioned them like four times a year and try, it's just, they're not, the leather isn't what they should be um, and starting to leak a little bit, but. I don't know. I'm, I might be end up using them in Alaska here again. So I'm, I gotta just make sure they're, they're good to go for that. <laughs> yeah. So Bill, I want to hear a little bit about, um, the, the new wide series. You were talking about doing some testing uh, with that. And, uh, you gave me one, um, at the ATA show, I was going on a whitetail hunt in Ohio and I ended up, I was there for a couple of days and I ended up not shooting it or not killing anything with it. But, um, was been doing some testing with it and they from my perspective they fly for me the same as the s125s did which i'm using the the 125s also with the, the wide cut um i haven't tried shooting them at distance as where i was you know for you know when i was shooting them 80 yards the s125s with these ones i shot them out to 60 though and i they didn't plane for me or anything so that was uh that was a pretty positive thing for the size of those heads. Yeah, yeah, we um you know we started with the, the V series, then we added the S series, which was you know, original vented blade, and then solid blade, but they're all the they're all the same size, which was inch and sixteenth wide main blade, three quarter inch wide bleeder, so about one point eight inch total cut. Um and we had I've had hundreds of uh mainly whitetail guys asking for a wider cut you know they're just they felt it was kind of overkill for whitetails they're zipping through and sticking way into the dirt and felt like they could uh, a lot of people just felt like they could get a wider head through there 
um, pretty easily on a whitetail. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I agree they're overkill for whitetail. But also, one thing about whitetails is, is they're one of the more likely things to move on you. You know, I think I've hunted, I think it was seven different species in the last year or so. And, and like, you know, elk and, uh, you know, oddad and, you know, some other animals aren't nearly as likely to move, I think, as a whitetail. So even though um, they're a little easier to get through, get a pass through on, they're also more likely to duck and hit the spine or turn into the head and hit the shoulder blade and, and things like that or jump forward. Um, so anyway, having, having a broadhead that's overkill, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, but, you know, after thinking about it a lot, I thought, okay, for, you know, whitetails, bears, things where there's a little more controlled, you know, closer shot, um, you know, why not give a wider, wider cut? And so design, spent a couple years really designing the, the wider head, wanted to make sure I wasn't going to give anything up on, on durability, um, and have them fly as, as well as possible, um, doing fluid dynamic modeling to, to try and, uh, keep the drag down, things like that. But anyways, we come up with it, um, made a bunch of them last summer. Um, they're inch and three eighths wide main blade, three quarter inch wide bleeder. So two and an eighth inch total cut, um, placed them with about a dozen testers and we took about 50 animals total with them, uh, mainly whitetails. Um, but yeah, all the, all the feedback was good. I had each tester shoot them to 60 yards see how they grouped with field points. They all reported, um, good groups at 60 yards. Um, so that was good to hear. And we didn't have any, any failures on any animals, even, um, going down through, you know, spying on a big whitetail buck. And, um, we had a pass through that included like that knuckle, that elbow, um, on a whitetail on the entry side and still made a full pass through. And, um, you know, even on all those shots, uh, the broadheads are looking good afterwards. And yeah, the people were, the tests them were, were excited about it, you know, more, you know, bigger holes, more blood on the ground, everything that people like to see, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. The, I mean, I haven't again shot one with the wide series, but the S125 I've taken multiple deer with, and the one I shot, it was a quartering away shot, and I punched through, and it came out the opposite side shoulder and right on that knuckle, and it snapped the leg right in half. I mean, it, that was it was just incredible. I mean, it the um, I, I feel really confident with them, and I think with me with my equipment, and my setups and stuff, I need to be confident in it and not all the time is the shot going to be perfect. And especially, you know, a lot of places I'm hunting and a lot of the people that are listening to this that are hunting through the Appalachian range for whitetails where our shot opportunities are very slim um, and far in between. It's thick. You get small windows of opportunities. You got to make it happen. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of holding tight to that shoulder. Um, and, you know, in case it does go through there, I'm confident in my, arrow set up and the the broadhead and the whole the whole entire bit there so and i you know i've been using iron will broadheads now since i think since the first year that you came out with them when i when i first bought them i had the uh the v series and then i went to the the solid heads and they've all been i still have all of them except for one i think one or two of them that i lost but that was just because i lost them none of them were <laughs> you know i just can resharpen them and keep going 
Yeah, it's the only thing we don't cover under warranty is if you lose them completely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that'd be a tough one to uh, be able to do an investigation on there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I, I attribute my my increased success in recent years to different shot placement. Um, you know, having confidence in the equipment to where. I won't, I'm not only going to take that perfect broadside shot, but I'll also take, you know, a frontal or even a slight quartering. Um, because I just know I've tested enough. Um, the last two mule deer I shot were, were frontals with a bait, uh, just a slight quartering on really. And that's the only shot I was going to get on those. You know, I was, they, they, I could, they stopped, they kind of knew something was up. Um, I waited till they kind of looked away, but I felt like they were just going to turn and get out of there. And I took the shot and one of them, you know, just in, went just inside the shoulder blade, got a full pass through out near the, the hind quarter. Um, it was a quick kill. The other one, he, he ducked and turned as I shot and it went right through the shoulder blade, but it still passed all the way through and got an exit, you know, behind the ribs. Um, and he was down in 20 yards too. And so, yeah, I think, or, you know, like Tony Treat shot a, a giant mule deer, 200-inch mule deer in Colorado a couple years ago. I think it was just on the cover of Eastman's. And that was a downward shot um, where you went right through the spine on that big uh, mule deer buck. And it completely severed the spine, like, in two pieces and went down into the vitals. And that was a big, heavy spine. And, you know, he and he said, you know, heads he shot in the past would not have gone through that. So, um, I think making it so those, those different shot opportunities you're presented with are going to be a success and not a failure is, is, is pretty important too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hunt off the ground a decent amount for whitetails and I learned this from my dad, but he, you know, is teach me, you got to be able to shoot frontals, um, when they come you know, at you and be able to pass through and everything. And last year, this was a mistake I had made, but I I took a shot on a whitetail buck that was a frontal. And I thought he was at somewhat of a level of me, but he was below me. I was in a tree stand, but uh, where he came across this ridge, I thought he was um, at a decent angle. And I shot and I didn't, it was, it was all my shot placement. I didn't, I had it too low where I needed to have it up a little bit completely passed through. I just clipped one lung and that buck ended up living and a, and a guy shot him in rifle season. But, um, but yeah, it completely passed through. It's just, that was on a placement, but I guess what I was getting at is just like being able to be confident and, you know, I was hundred percent confident in the shot and everything. It was just where I, you know, had the placement with the angle there. So I try not to make that shot at, uh, at elevated position just cause it's such a small margin for error. But, um, like, like you were saying, it just, it opens up different opportunities by being confident in, in what your arrow and broadhead's going to do. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I did some recent, recent force testing just to see what the force would be of our, of our, um, our S 100 versus our S 125. Um, S 100 is just a little bit shorter front to back. So it's a slightly steeper, you know, angle on that blade instead of 22 per side is it's more like 25 per side and then our wide head being 30 percent wider i pushed those all through um using an instrument machine so i can measure force versus distance very accurately pushing down through that and um i took i used odd ad parts which are similar to a deer in size i would say for 
And for pushing through um, hide and just hide and then muscle, it was only took about 11 pounds to push our broadhead down through there. I mean, it's with that sharp edge, um, extremely sharp edge that just retains that edge. It takes very little force just to push that through um, hide and hair. And you take that versus like a three blade uh, chisel point that jumped up to 80 pounds to push that through through that same um, hide and hair. Um, and then mechanicals was up over 160 pounds, um, to do that. Wow. Yeah. And then if, if you look at hide, um, you know, hide meat and then shoulder blade, um, the force for ironwood broadheads was about 30 pounds to push through. And it was somewhere between our standard and our wide actually. Um, and I attribute that to the, really the sharpness of that edge. I think once you get the, the tip started through there, Having a little wider didn't really increase the force. I think that edge sharpness it, is so high that it just doesn't take that much force to keep it going through there. But, um, you know, 30 pounds for our, our head, and then it, it jumped up to um, 160 pounds for, for some three-blade heads. So, you know, over five times more force um, to push through. So, you know, for whatever momentum you have, that's going to be equal to force over time. And if you can cut the force in half, say you're going to, push through it twice as long or twice as far. So have, keeping that force low is really critical to, to getting pass throughs when, especially when you have a shoulder blade or something like that included. Yeah, that's, that's incredible to, and, you know, being able to test that the way that you do just kind of shows the, that, you know, one, that not all fixed blades are created equal. Cause you always hear the discussion of fixed blades versus mechanicals, but definitely goes deeper than that. Yeah. And, and, and mechanicals um, took, it was over 400 pounds oh. to, I mean, that's how much force I kind of maxed out the machine going down at 400 pounds and it was crushed, crushed it all down to the table and it, it never did actually penetrate the bone. And um, yeah, I would have, I would have started damaging the load cell to continue. So I stopped at 400 pounds, but it never actually penetrated the shoulder blade. So you can see that's, that's over 10 times the force. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to me, there's, I don't see a good reason ever to use a mechanical, really. I mean, especially for whitetails when your shots are, are 40 and under. I just think that, um, you know, if you want a little bigger head, go with go with the wider fixed blade. But um, mechanicals just take so much force to, to pass through that when you, when you get a shoulder blade or something doesn't go quite right, there's just such a, um, it's, it's pretty marginal on whether you're just going to get a failure um, and lose that animal. Yeah. That's true. And it just, I mean, we could go all day as far as the things with mechanicals, but you know, I, I've only used mechanicals a few times and I had one where, uh, the blade didn't open. Um, and that was ended up still killing the animal, but, uh, it, it only one of the blades had kind of like slightly open. Another one was closed and it was just, uh, kind of a mess. And I understand there's some that make it somewhat fail proof, but still there's a lot of moving parts to that and you know for for failure purposes there and i've always been been able to justify a little bit of a smaller cut for it which what your wide series now are inch and three eighths on the the big blades that is that correct yeah inch and three eighths big blade and then there's a cross blade bleeder at seven uh, three quarters so it's 208 inch total cut there so yeah the the i shot two white tails with it last year and yeah, that, that makes a big hole. You know, even the one, um, well, one was just kind of a perfect double long shot and it just made it 10 yards and was down. But another one was a, 
was a 42-yard shot and kind of low light, and it was quartering more than I thought, and I ended up getting a one-long liver hit. But, and, and that's really where the wide head – so I was kind of on the fence about, do we really need a wide head or not? Um, but that, head, that shot convinced me that, you know, a wide head is kind of nice if you hit back a little bit because I think just having that more, more damage – and our, our heads, you know, they're really sharp, so they're slicing all the way through. And I think even our compact heads, you get more bleeding than you would on a typical head just because that – that sharpness maintains through the hide and ribs and everything there. But having that, that bigger cut on that whitetail, he ran about a hundred yards and died quickly. And there was just a ton of blood on the ground in that hundred yards. So I think he bled out and died a lot faster than he would have um, with the smaller cut. You know, it's mm-hmm. that, that single lung liver or just liver hit um, where that bigger cut helps you out for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's, I mean, Really, if if you make the exact perfect shot, most broadheads will work for it. But we're all hunters; we're human. That always doesn't happen, and uh, that's where I like to have the the reliability of knowing that that you know that it's gonna help out even when things aren't perfect. Right, and there's been uh, there's been kind of a debate about that. That yeah, if you hit forward in the shoulder, you're gonna wish you had like a durable you know, cut on contact two blade or something like that. But if you hit back, a lot of guys say, you're going to wish you had a, a mechanical. And I kind of feel like the wide head or wide head is a better solution. Cause if you hit forward, it's still going to go through the shoulder blade. And if you hit back, it's going to make, make a bigger cut, um, you know, liver or guts, it's going to do more damage and put that animal down quicker, die quicker. So yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I feel really good about it actually for, for white tails, bears, um, bears as well because they you know they have that that thick hair and um they're not that hard to pass through but that thick hair and fat um they are known for not bleeding as well and we've had good we've had really good results in the bear hunts i've been on the last few years just shooting our our standard or v series or s series but um i think a bigger hole just in general if you talk to a lot of bear guys bear outfitters um, they like a little bigger hole for that blood tracking. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and if you think about, it, I mean, that heads inch and three eighths, a lot of mechanicals are only an inch and a half and, you know, they can go up to two inches, but that's only, you know, on each side, you know, like the same thing when I think of, you know, axle axles on a bow and I'm like, Oh man, that one's 33 or mine's 30. I'm like, well, that's only an inch and a half on each side. And if you look at broadheads, you know, that's only say there's, um, you know, an eighth an inch difference. That's only a 16th on each side, uh, you know, essentially to, to uh, of a difference, which isn't a whole lot. And to be able to have the durability, the toughness and stuff of it, that's uh, a pretty good solution. Yeah. And the other thing with, with mechanicals is, um, I've tested a lot of them now too. And they're to, in order to not snap their blades on the way in, they're, they're pretty soft. You know, they're down in the mid 40s for Rockwell C, you know, 46 or 48 Rockwell C. So the edges aren't aren't very sharp, um, really, compared to your average, what you can get with a blade. Um, having that softness, um, you just don't get it that sharp to start with. And then that edge is gone as soon as you go through hide, and for sure hide in the rib. So so what that does is those as those edges are are um, dulled right as you go through hide and are hiding the rib, it's taking more force to penetrate from that on, 
um, and it's not cutting as well. It's just kind of pushing tissue or tearing tissue. And, and if you do get through the other side, you know, it's trying to tear a hole through there, but you know, often they don't make it all the way through. And then when they don't, you don't have that, you know, low exit hole for that better blood as well. So, you know, people that argue, um, a large entrance hole beats, beats a, an exit hole. I, I totally disagree. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, I've, I've got a blood tracking dog and I talk to blood trackers as well too. And I think if you ask those guys, they'll tell you that exit hole, having an exit hole greatly increases their chance of finding that animal. For yeah. Sure. That they, they, they actually just legalized that in Pennsylvania year last year, the year before, um, the blood tracking dogs. And that's, uh, I think that's incredible. But, um, anyways, that, uh, also, you know, when everyone's comparing, you know, mechanicals to fixed blades, I feel like even the guys that are for fixed blades are saying with mechanicals, it's just because of the loss of energy or maybe I'm not describing this correctly, but from the mechanicals opening, but it sounds like the, the sharpness of the blade might even be more important than that or equally at least. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's what I found is that, you know, I shot um, mechanicals, some of the leading mechanicals. Um, I measured the force to push through things, but I also shot them through just um, hide or hide over shoulder blade. Um, and, you know, just going through a shoulder blade, either the, the blades would be badly bent or broken off. Um, and then when I hit like a heavy bone, like a leg bone, they just exploded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were, yeah. The, I mean, the durability is, is an issue, you know, to get that wide, you're doing at a hundred grain or even 125, you got pretty thin blades. So, you know, they're going to bend or break. Um, and so, yeah, that's the concern is that once they do enter, they're not slicing very well and they're not killing as effectively as they could as well. Yeah. All right. So a lot of the things too, that you hear with, you know, fixed blades is guys saying they can't get them to shoot right and everything. So I want to hear, you actually had an Instagram post the other day that I thought laid it out really great as far as what to do with your bow to make sure that you're shooting your fixed blades the same as you are field points. So do you want to kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. I can walk you through that. Yeah, so um, let's you know let's start with the arrow. You want to make sure you're not you're not underspined. You want to make sure your arrow's stiff enough for the for the head weight and for your bow. And and you know that can if you, if you are underspined, you can get a lot more flexing in your arrow as it comes off your bow. It's pretty erratic, and with that bending side to side, there's just more chance for some you know pressure on the side of that head that would want to push it off course. So, you know, and, and the funny thing is a lot of guys know they're underspined and they do it anyways because they want to get a certain speed or something like that. But, you know, don't do it. Even if you're shooting mechanical, don't be underspined because you're just losing energy, a lot of energy at that flexing. And you're not going to group as well um, with your bow. So, you know, make sure your arrow's not underspined. Um, make sure your broadhead spins true. You know, get a little, a little arrow spinner. Um, they're pretty cheap. You can lay your arrow on there and you can spin it and look at the point and make sure that's staying right on center. If that's wobbling back and forth side to side, you know, as you, as you're shooting, if that head is, is not on center, you can see how it's going to create pressure on one side and push it off, off course. So, um, make sure it's spinning true. If it's not, it could be, you know, it could be the arrow, could be the insert, could be the broadhead. Um, 
So you can kind of swap those out, you know, move your broadhead to another arrow, see if it goes with the broadhead or if it stays with the arrow, things like that. Put your field point on, see how that does. But yeah, make sure your broadhead spin true. Um, you know, make sure you have enough, uh, have enough fletch on there. When you have, you know, broadhead, you have more surface area on the front. So just more area for pressure to act and want to, want to push it off, off center. And, and what you need then is, um, some fletch at the back to create some drag there and, and maintain stability. So I'll sometimes see that somebody will have like a real small target fletch on there. And what you want to have is, is, you know, more fletch than that. Like something, um, like a hope high profile, shorter vein, like a blazer vein, um, works well. I just recently tested, um, blazer veins and, um, max hunters. Yep and uh, Q, Q2i Fusion 2, and they're all about the same height and area. They're all kind of a shorter, high-profile vein, and they all work great. Um, yeah, I really liked all – I was kind of headed down to those three of, um, of the ones that I thought kind of steered things really well. Um, if you want to go a lower profile, you know, some people um, don't like those. They think they're a little bit loud. Um, the Blazer Vein, the AE Max Hunter um, – they have a little, a little bit of noise to them. The Q2i Fusion 2 was a little bit less noise, but it's a little heavier. It had just slightly more drag. So, But I think any of those three worked really well for me. And like a four-fletch configuration, I've tested the the Max Stealth vein and, and the Heat veins. And they're kind of a similar height and length. And um, in four-fletch, both those worked really well for me. Um, you know, it's a little bit more weight, a little bit more drag. But if you... If you want a quiet setup, those work pretty well. Um, in, in all cases, I was trying to get about two and a half degrees of of offset or helical, and 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 to me, offset and helical are the same thing. If you take a if you take a line and you offset it on a cylinder, and you wrap that around a cylinder, it's a helix. So to me, they're not not really a difference. I mean, you can buy a helical or offset clamp, but a helical clamp is just trying to get a certain offset and then wrap a shaft of a certain diameter. And it, so it kind of depends on what your fletching jig is, but I don't get hung up on helical or offset. I think either is fine, but I like to see over two degrees. And so the reason for that is um, you want to have some spin there. If you're, let's say that point um, isn't perfectly on center, but it's, it's off a little bit that might create some pressure, say on the side of that broadhead. Well, if you're spinning that, that force is kind of spinning with it and it'll just kind of keep you, you know, on center versus if you're not rotating and you're just, that broadhead is off a little bit, that pressure is just going to keep pushing in the same direction and want to kind of push it off a little bit. So you can see how with a broadhead, it's going to help to have spin, um, to start with. And then also as your arrow spinning, it um you've got this stability from that spin you've got this rotational momentum that'll take more force to, to knock it off course so let's say you get a little wind gust part way down um that wind gust isn't going to push it as far or or make it make that arrow angle as much um if it's spinning because it has that rotational momentum it's kind of like a gyroscope if you spin those up and then see how much torque it takes to, to move those things around that spinning rotational momentum will keep it on on track on axis um so yeah don't and i've and i've had this argument with pro shops 
too that say, well, your arrow is going to spin just coming right out of the bow or your arrow is going to spin because the earth is rotating or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I want it to spin more than one rotation in 24 hours here. I want it to spin, you know, on purpose. Here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, put enough, uh, enough angle to get some rotation there that will help you well, um uh, just a couple comments on what the, the things you covered so far is when I, and i worked in a, a pro shop and everything you know there's a couple things that that i saw too and you know as the foc thing got big and everyone wanting to add point weight is what you were was weakening the spine of an arrow so you have to like you know say my on when i was shooting uh the gold tip uh, platinum pierce arrows just the way my setup was i ended up having to go down to a 300 spine instead of a 350 which is what it said was right for my bow but i had a lot of point weight up there so for me to get everything to shoot right i had to stiffen the spine up a little bit and that's one thing that's not it's not as easy to, to figure out for people that aren't messing with them all the time or don't have the opportunity to try a bunch of different arrows and um you know, so that was one thing. And then, and last, I think it's been three years now, I've been shooting four fletch. I was shooting the AE Max Hunters and the new ones I'm shooting are those Q2i ones and the four fletch configuration. I love it. And I do the, the two and a half degree helical on it and it's, it's money for that. Yeah. Yeah. That That's great. And yeah, that has become a problem that people are often trying to add um, point weight or increase their FOC. And there's not a lot of good arrow charts out there to help you out, figure out what the right spine is. Um, there's some software programs, um, Pinwheel or Archer's Advantage. I'd, I'd suggest using those. I think there might even be free online versions. Um, and I think I think Three Rivers has a, although they might only be for like a trad setup, but I think they have like a free arrow, arrow test or arrow spine um, program. But yeah, um, it's, it's not just readily available on most arrow manufacturers spine charts anymore when you're adding something other than a hundred grain head or 125 grain head um, up front. But yeah, with a little bit of, of work, it's um, you'll be able to figure it out and find the right spine. And you know, one way to test this too is, you know, take your arrow and shoot with different um, by some field points of heavier weights and see how they um, see how they group for you. Just kind of reinforce it as well. And I, I like to, you know, suggest people first do the, you know, run through a little pro spine program and, and try to be, you know, nominal or slightly stiff on spine. But when you get your arrow set up, I like to play around with shooting a little bit heavier, a little bit lighter, see if something groups better. And it might tell you that you're on the hairy edge of being maybe overspined or, or under or underspined. Overspine hasn't really been an issue for me, but I don't go too extreme on overspine either. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's dive a little deeper. What, what else uh, do you look at after you have the, you know, your arrow set up and everything's true there? Yeah. So the, what's the arrow set up now, you know, the bow needs to be tuned so that the arrow comes straight off the bow. You know, if it's going, if it's fishtailing right or left or porpoising up or down that, you know, that broad head is going to get pressure on one side or the other and push it off and open up your group. So, um, yeah, taking the time to get your bow, your bow tuned and it's going to vary a bit on bow type, but basically, you know, it's that center shot, set, set the vertical, um, 
correctly and then go through the steps to, to tune your bow. And what I do personally is um, to check it, I'll, I'll paper tune with a fletch shaft and then a bear shaft. Um, bear shaft, I just get a little more fine, you know, fine adjustment I can see there. You know, shooting through paper at, at 12 feet or so, 10, 12 feet. Um, so that's all I'll do initially. And then, you know, from there I'm, I'm changing, um, you know, knock point up or down. And then depending on the, on the bow, I'm either, um, yoke tuning or, or shifting cams, trying to leave the center shot, you know, where it's supposed to be, but doing those other things to, to adjust right, left tears and get that all on center. And then I'll move out to 20 yards and shoot a fletch shaft with a bear shaft. And what I want to do is get them hitting right next to each other and have the shafts be parallel. And, um, you know, what I'll typically see when I first do that is that the bear shaft will be, you know, right, left or up or down from the flat shaft. And it'll be at a little bit of an angle, you know, right. Or, the shaft will be a little bit of an angle, right or left. And then I'll do, um, small adjustments. Um, typically at that point I'm doing small adjustments, right or left to my rest, like very small amount, like 16th of an inch type movement. And, and that's, that's typically uh, what I need to do just to get those things hitting just right with each other. And then I'll shoot them at 30 and 40. And, and yeah, if I get a bear shaft, a flex shaft, like hitting together parallel, you know, shafts just about touching at 40, man, I'm going to shoot, be able to shoot broadheads to hundred yards plus with, with field points. Okay. Gotcha. And that, that's just, I, I wanted to ask you that because that is something that, that you hear a lot. And same thing when, again, I worked at a pro shop, saw hundreds of people come in every year and they would just get mechanicals cause they didn't need to mess with it or do anything that, you know, as they thought. Um, but there's, you get your bow tuned correctly and your arrow set up and everything else. And you're, you're in a good spot. And, and it's, it's taken, you know, even me a while to kind of figure out exactly what that looks like. And now I kind of have a system that works and I try not to change it a whole lot. And, and my last few bows have been primes that have been very similar to each other. So that made it easy. You know, when I was working at a shop there for a while, I was just shooting a bunch of different bows and every one of them was a little bit different. And, you know, at the Matthews had a, there's a top hats and moving them and just so many different things that you, um, that are a part of it. But once you get it figured out, it's, it definitely makes a difference. Yeah, it does. And, you know, once you learn it, it's pretty quick. I, I set up a new Hoyt this year and I think I had that thing fully tuned in an hour. I mean, everything just kind of worked out there, but yeah. also set up, also set up a Matthews and um, once I had got the top hat kit in ordered in, it was really quick to set that up too, you know, so I could shim the cam over. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, our, most everybody says our heads shoot really well for them. Um, and at one time I thought they would just would shoot well for everybody. But what I find is there's always a few guys that have, have some issue. And I think our original V100 Man, that head is forgiving. I can shoot that out of a, a a bow that's out of tune. I can see the arrow fishtailing, and I'm still hitting with with field points pretty well at 40. And so, I think a lot of whitetail hunters just can shoot that head and and um, in place of their mechanical and have no issues there. But um, I'd recommend anyways, you know, getting your bow bow tuned in. And but yeah, the the things I've found, the few people that have come back and said there's a, a an issue with your broadhead with 
I'm not shooting at broadheads well. I've worked with them a little bit, and it's typically, yeah, they're underspined, um, or they or they don't know anything about bow tuning. You ask if you was your bow tuned at all, and they said, well, they paper tuned it when I bought it um, two years ago. You know, and and uh, so I think a lot of guys do that. They just get it tuned by their um, their bow shop, and and sometimes it's just through a shooting machine when they first buy it, and then they don't really know how to check their tune and things like that. And, and man, I've had to re every bow I've had, I've had to retune the thing a few months later, yeah. just, just from shooting it and string stretch or whatever. Um, I don't know if things creep a little bit or twist. I've never, I've never figured out all the reasons why I have to retune my bow, you know, every few months, but I often do. Um, so I, I like to keep checking tune as the time goes on. And as my hunting season goes on too, I'll come back and you know, shoot it through paper, shoot a bear shaft, make sure everything's still good to go. Yeah. And, and that's why I like to shoot my broadheads a lot, especially this time of year, but I start earlier now or before I'd always wait until August. Like a lot of pe some people wait until right before the season, but you know, I'd, and you know, not, I'd, I'd like to give it more time to, if there's any problems to be able to figure out if it came out of tune, but also just in your regular practice, I always keep a practice broadhead in my quiver and at least shoot one or two of them a night just, uh, you know, kind of confirm everything there too. Yeah. So that's about it for the bow and the arrow. The last thing would be just your form, you know, um, torque, torque in the grip is, is a issue some people just have. And I guess facial pressure can be a problem too, or, you know, con you know, contact of your, your veins on your rest or something like some of those basic things too. But, um, yeah, grip torquing your grip is maybe the last thing that if you get somebody to take their phone and video, you know, most phones now have like a slow motion video you can do. Um, but have, have a friend like video, you know, from a, the, you know, kind of right on the side or right behind you as you're shooting and look and see what your bow's doing is your bow, twisting right or left as your arrows coming off there or not um you might just have to work on your your grip and your form a little bit as the last thing yeah and you can also see it one thing that i've done is take a video like you said behind and even up at looking at your upper cam there and what your string angle that comes off you know if some people are torquing it hard it's coming off at an angle and you can see it pretty clearly there um yeah completely agree yeah, you know, shooting Total Archery Challenge last weekend, I was just, you know, watching some people I was shooting with and telling them, you know, your muscle shouldn't be pumping out of your hand like that. <laughs> you know, relax that hand a little bit there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you could see that was, you know, throwing the arrow right or left. Um, that was a field points on, yep. uh, you know, six, inch, six inches just from torquing the bow a bit. All right. So what else um – all right, so moving on from broadheads a little bit, what else uh, do you got going on at Iron Will? Anything else new coming at you? Yeah, just um, one last thing on the whiteheads. We just did a uh, one more thing of testing. We did a hog hunt here a couple months ago with my friend Blake uh, Hunter, and four of us took took 16 hogs, um, primarily using the whiteheads. A couple guys had the standards too, I think. But um, it was just kind of a test. I get a lot of questions. Should I use the wide head on, on elk or um, a little bigger animal? So those hogs are a pretty good test. They got really thick hide. It's almost like it's tough. It's stiff, more like plastic than leather almost. Um, heavy hair and heavy bones. And so 16 hogs, we got pass-throughs on every. We got 
you know, exit holes on every hog, even with, I think one guy was shooting a 47 pound recurve. Um, and I shot two where one was a double shoulder blade, double shield pass through shot. And I got a, I got exit hole on that one, made it through both shoulders. Um, and then a downward 45 degree angle through the spine where it cut like four of these little ribs that stick up on the top of the spine. I don't know what you call those, but cut four of those off clean, went through three, four inches of spine and then buried back into the pelvis. So anyway, the wide head penetration has been great. And those heads look like new. Uh, I put a picture photo on our Instagram of them. So anyway, um, at first I wasn't sure about the wide head. If I would say it's not going to penetrate as well as the solid and, um, Everything we've seen is that they penetrate uh, penetrate really well. So I want to just give that info as well. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So other things going on, we came out with our K1 ultralight knife last year. I think you mentioned you used it for your elk. Um, yep. We're just adding, uh, we've had a lot of requests for a handle for that. So you didn't have to use it as a skeleton or with a paracord wrap. Um, so we're CNC machining some G10, two color G10 material for a handle. Um, you can buy that as a kit and add it to the knife if you already have it, or you'll be able to buy the knife now with that included. And yeah, by the end of July here, we'll have that on our website for sale. Um, we also added another knife. I've been working on a skinning knife that has, um, the blades a little bit shorter in length and it's got a, it's, it's much wider and it's got a big sweeping radius to it. So it's more like, a yeah, it's more like a specialty skinning knife. And uh, there's a hole through the, the blade so you can choke up on it and get a real real positive hold on it with your finger through that, with your index finger through that hole. And it's it's similar to an old skinning knife that I've I had years ago and, and really like um, really like how that works for skinning. So we had quite a few guys test it this year and they're pretty excited about about that one as well. Good. And our our K one knife, uh, original one just weighs one ounce. So that's it's the lightest full length, you know, hunting knife that, that I'm aware of. Um, and it's got that back, back top, um, the top edge is sharp near the tip for ripping hide, things like that. But anyways, it's, it's one ounce skeleton. I think with, with the sheath, with the kayak sheath and the handle, it'll still be under two ounces. I think it will be like 1.9 with that. Huh, that's crazy. Yeah, and our new skinning knife, I think it's going to be 1.1 as a skeleton knife, and uh, and with the sheath and handle, it'll still be under two ounces as well. Wow, that yeah, that, I I wrap my handle in paracord, and I like that because at first when I got the knife, I was kind of concerned of how thin it was and like getting a grip on it. Once I wrapped it in paracord, for me personally, I thought it was it worked great. I had no no issues with it, and skinned my elk out and everything there. I carry a little carbide sharpener in my kill kit in case I need to just touch it up a little bit as, as you're cutting through hide and stuff. And, and, uh, just, just, uh, did a full fleshing on a rattlesnake skin the other day with it. And, uh, <laughs> that worked, that worked really well. Um, I saw that you, so you have a lot of rattlesnakes around there. Yeah, we do. We, we do have a, a decent amount. They're in pockets. They're not everywhere, but, um, some places have more than others. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I battle with snakes here. I'm in the foothills in Colorado and, um, my hunting dogs been bit twice this, this summer by rattlesnakes. Really? Oh so, yeah. I found, I found one and killed it, but there's more around for sure. Huh. But uh, I've got, I got the routine down now. I just go to, 
CSU vet hospital. They put her on antivenom and, and um, overnight, and she's pretty good by the next day. So that's incredible. It's, it's expensive though, so I gotta I gotta cut down the rattlesnakes around here. Yeah, sure. my my brother lives um, just outside of Denver there, and and he. He ran into one a place that he goes hiking and running and stuff with his dog all the time. He ran into one the other day and he thought his dog got bit and then he realized that she was just being a baby and got scared and made a screech like she got bit, but she didn't. <laughs> yeah, mine takes it like a man. She got bit right on the muzzle and just kept kept hunting and running around up there, chasing rabbits and whatever. And then um, I thought she was carrying something in her mouth because her mouth was swollen so big. I thought she'd picked up a gopher or something. I call her over. No, it was just her, her muzzle was swollen up that big already. Oh and, man. Yeah. I had got pretty big by the time I got her to the, the hospital there, but geez. Yeah. Um, but the vet said now with being bit twice this summer, she's probably just about immune to him at this point. <laughs> <laughs> jeez, she bit Three times total. She got bit when she was four months old as well. That's incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. So I just took, it through a, just took it through a snake break clinic to hopefully cure that. Yeah, she takes it better than I think I would, but uh <laughs> it's gotta be painful. Yeah. For sure. Anyways, Bill, where where can people find, you know, some more information on Iron Will, uh the new broadheads and everything else that uh we talked about here? Yeah, our website is um ironwilloutfitters.com. Our um Instagram is also, Ironwell Outfitters um, and, and Facebook is the same as well. So, yeah, check that out. Um, we usually post when our new products are, are coming out on uh, on Instagram, kind of identify or notify everybody. And then, yeah, a lot of details are on our website. You know, I, I mentioned some of the force to push through with different broadhead designs, things like that. We just added all that data to our website um, as well. So, yeah, check it out. A lot of good info there. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, um, and this is what will be a, a two-part series here. So thanks for coming on and talking to me, taking two hours out of your day and uh, spending talking about hunting. Yeah, you bet. If I don't talk to you before the hunt, I'm sure we'll have to get together and, and share stories afterwards. Yes, yes, we definitely will. I'm, I'm pumped and also excited to get to use that new wide head this year and run it through a few whitetails hopefully in pennsylvania ohio maybe new york we'll see yeah that'd be great let me know how it works for you a lot of guys that tested it are pretty excited about about the wide head so i think that's a that's gonna be a great whitetail head awesome sure. all right bill well we'll uh we'll talk to you soon then thanks a lot bo take care Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.